Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, July 17th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to return to our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and this is part five. It is subtitled, Portrait of the Messiah. The reasons for that should become clear as our commentary progresses. In the first part of this second chapter of the Wisdom of Solomon, we saw a portrait of the wicked, which is actually a timeless description of some of the natural tendencies of wicked men, ungodly men. Now we shall see more of those tendencies described in relation to the attitude of the wicked towards the righteous. They are portrayed as declaring their own concept of righteousness and seeking to uphold it forcibly by the might of their own strength, which is a manifestation of the pagan and humanist phenomenon of might makes right, and which in turn is really only the law of the jungle and justifies tyranny. With this attitude, the wicked are portrayed as justifying the oppression of the weak, the elderly, and the righteous in their own pursuit to gratify their fleshly desires. Yet the truly righteous man is an obstacle to the wicked because he declares to them their sin and stands firmly in opposition to them on account of their sin. So they are depicted as saying here, as we would translate verse 12 of this chapter, where we had left off in the last portion of this commentary. Therefore, let us lie in wait for the righteous, because he is intractable to us, and he is opposed to our works. He reproaches us for our transgressions of the law and imprecates the transgressions of our education. In other words, he calls down curses upon those transgressions, the transgressions of the education of the wicked. There we also see that in spite of the fact that they seek to implement their own law, the wicked are nevertheless forced to acknowledge that there is a greater law by which the righteous condemn them. And for that alone, they hate the righteous and seek to destroy them. Perhaps with the exception of the Bolshevik Revolution, of which the actual circumstances were purposely hidden from the people of the West for many decades. Nowhere in recent history is this phenomenon of the hatred which the wicked have for the righteous more evident than it is today. God-fearing white Christians are being persecuted for their Christian profession and are hated merely for being white. Today, the righteous are being openly and systematically persecuted for nothing else but speaking out against evil. The so-called Black Lives Matter organization, and also the so-called Antifa organization, with whom it is partnered, are only fronts for the imposition of global communism, by which the wicked hope to steal the wealth of the righteous, and destroy Christianity forever, as well as any concept of a white race. They hate whites for being Christians, and they hate whites for upholding the rule of law. When we examine these movements, we find that they are supported preeminently by Jewry. And then, because they are supported by Jewry, they are also supported by all of the world's international banks and corporations, by wealthy international trusts and charities, 
and also by many politicians, bureaucrats, and government agents. Here we call them movements, but that is not even their true nature. In the book of Acts, we see, in chapter 17, that the Jews had gathered the lowest sort of rabble from the city streets and enlisted them to persecute the apostles of Christ. It wasn't a movement, it was an organized gang of criminals. Likewise, Jews are the predominant figures behind both Antifa and Black Lives Matter. For example, there is a Jewess named Susan Rosenberg, who was a leftist militant in the 1970s and 1980s. She was part of an organization of leftists, leftist radicals, which provided support to another militant group, the so-called Black Liberation Army. So Black Lives Matter, it's not a new idea. To fund that group, Susan Rosenberg took part in armored truck robberies and also participated in the bombing of government buildings and other crimes. So she was caught, tried, and sentenced to 58 years in prison. But she was released in January 2001 after serving only 16 years upon being granted clemency by outgoing president and fellow leftist Bill Clinton. Today it should be no wonder that Susan Rosenberg is vice chairman of the board of directors of yet another leftist organization called Thousand Currents, a so-called nonprofit foundation that, according to Wikipedia, sponsors the fundraising and does administrative work for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. One of the primary funders of Black Lives Matter through Thousand Currents is the Kellogg Foundation, although there are many others. We see Susan Rosenberg as a symbol of the outright collusion between leftist anarchist communists and so-called liberal elements in American government and international corporations. Bill Clinton gave her clemency, and immediately she returned to the activities for which she was imprisoned in the first place, except that today others do the shooting and throw the bombs on her behalf. This is not at all coincidental. In the 1960s, the leftist communists were radicals rioting in the streets, and today, the leftist communists are presidents, governors, and mayors, and they sit on the boards of corporations and foundations. Because they have been groomed and supported by banks and corporations to do exactly what they are now doing, fulfilling the purposes of international Jewry. So the Kellogg Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Packard Foundation, these organizations and others like them have actually funded the recent Black Lives Matter riots around the country, openly cooperating with leftist terrorists such as Susan Rosenberg. These international trusts set up by long-dead white billionaires are being used to undermine what remains of Christian governance. The rule of law is a Christian concept, and the ultimate leftist endeavor is to eradicate it entirely, plunging us all into a new red terror, as our friend Dr. Michael Hill has termed it by which we shall all suffer under leftist tyranny, if indeed they can obtain their objectives. That is the real reason for calls to defund the police, so that the wicked can once again become a law unto themselves. The Jewish-controlled mainstream media, almost entirely owned by international corporations, is entirely complicit with them all. As identity Christians, we are not enthralled to the government, and especially 
to a government which has now oppressed us as Christians. But we must oppose evil, and we must endeavor to uphold the laws of our God, which is the law upon which the laws of the nations of Christendom were originally based. So we must seek to uphold the concept of the rule of law, because might does not make right, and we must also seek to defend ourselves and our people from the beasts who would destroy them. The Black Lives Movement, the Black Lives Don't Matter. The Black Lives Matter movement is truly a black supremacy movement, as if there could really ever be such a thing as black supremacy. They seek to destroy white Christians and seek to defund the police in order to carry on their plans for their greater war against whites in general. In Africa, black supremacy determines which tribal chief may first rape a baby and how many limbs from the cor corpses of rival tribes he may eat for dinner. That is how they want to remake America and all the West. This war on white Christians has been carried out for nearly a hundred years. This stage of the war, I should say, on white Christians has been carried out for nearly a hundred years. It's had other stages in the past, and we will mention those. And so far, the media has gotten away with characterizing it as a crime problem, but it is, and it has always been a race war all along, and virtually one-sided, where blacks are the constant aggressors and whites are the continual victims and often unsuspecting victims. In the Middle Ages, the Jews used the Moors and the Turks in their assaults on white Christian Europe. Today, it is the Negroes. Soon, it will be Chinese and Mexicans. And in a lot of ways, it already is Mexicans. But because blacks despise the rule of law, and they see law as a white construct, which is correct, the mere existence of laws and police are oppression to blacks. That is why blacks see the system itself as oppression, because the system prevents them from looting, pillaging, raping, and murdering whites without consequence. That is what they are really speaking of when they claim that there is inherent racism in the system, which is the system of law and governance originally put in place by and for white Christians and niggers don't fit into it. The natural allies of the blacks in this endeavor are Jews who have always sought to undermine Christianity and the sodomites and other criminals who comprise the majority of so-called Antifa. These are also lawless anarchists, wicked people who would oppress and kill the righteous in order to freely partake in their own perversions. Why are white Christian voices deplatformed by PayPal, Facebook, YouTube, Google, banks, major banks, and other international corporations, while Antifa and Black Lives Matter, which are openly communist and which often openly promote the use of violence to forward their agenda, are supported and even funded by those same corporations. Just yesterday, July 16th, the current U.S. Attorney General criticized Apple, Google, and Microsoft for supporting the communist regime in China. But how does it go unnoticed that these same corporations and others have also 
long supported and advocated communism here through their supporting and enabling of these communist groups. Is it not apparent that all of these corporations and also the communist Chinese government have openly supported Black Lives Matter, which at the same time is allied and colluding with Antifa? But at least most of the controlled media purposely keeps at least most Americans and others in the West in the dark concerning all of these things. Just as Jews in control of the media throughout the West had succeeded in keeping most white Christians ignorant of the Jewish nature and origins of communism for over a hundred years. One of the promises of the Gospel of Christ, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 1, is that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve God without fear. So we can be assured that our enemies, all those who hate white Christians, shall ultimately fail in their endeavor to destroy us. We may have titled this presentation of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, Portrait of the Righteous. However, we are interpreting this chapter as a whole to be a messianic prophecy. And once the reasons for that become evident, perhaps we shall see that this is indeed a portrait of Christ himself. However, that does not preclude the notion that throughout the ages, many men may have appeared to have fit this description, and certainly the ancient prophets of Yahweh. Many of them have also suffered the same fate as the righteous man who is depicted here. But not until Christ himself do we have such a man who had also made the profession that therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. John chapter 10, verse 17. Being every bit as confident in the fact of life after death as Solomon expresses it here. So the other righteous men throughout history could not take up their lives on their own, as Christ had said that he would even before he demonstrated its accomplishment to men. As we have read in verse 12 of Wisdom chapter 2, for his righteousness, the righteous man becomes a target for the wicked. But now, as we proceed with the chapter, the wisdom of Solomon also describes the confidence of the righteous man in spite of his having been hated by the wicked. This is the same confidence which Christ himself had expressed throughout his ministry. Furthermore, while drawing this portrait of the Messiah, Solomon also continues to describe the traits of the wicked in contrast to the righteous man in his depiction of their attitude towards him. As we proceed with verse 13, he is still describing the righteous man himself, as in verse 12, he had begun using the expressions of the wicked in their accusations against the righteous in order to do so. In verse 12, the wicked had complained that the righteous man was intractable to them and that he imprecated or cursed them on account of their wicked works. And now they continue complaining. And we start with Wisdom chapter 2, verse 13. He professes to have the knowledge of God and calls himself the child of the Lord. The ancient prophets had spoken in the name of Yahweh, where in their writings we often see the phrase, Thus saith the Lord, in the King James Version, or Thus saith Yahweh, in the original Hebrew. However, speaking to his adversaries, 
Christ himself did not use those words. Rather, he spoke as himself while giving explicit credit to God the Father in other ways. For example, addressing his adversaries. In John chapter 8, we see both his assertion that he did have the knowledge of God, as well as his foreknowledge that he would be killed by the wicked, where we read, Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning when you have crucified him, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. He professed to have the knowledge of God. Calling God his Father, he also made the assertion that he was the child of the Lord, as the Judeans understood his words, and they were offended by it. Their offense was hypocritical, because they also claimed God as their own father, and Christ denied them that claim, where we read a little further on in that same chapter of John. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. After his adversaries had asserted their claim that God was their father, Christ told them, a little further on, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. As we had said at the introduction to the first part of this chapter, when we were here with it several weeks ago, the chapter as a whole may be seen as a messianic prophecy, and the first half draws a portrait of the wicked, which also very well describes the attitudes and behavior of the men who had opposed Christ during the time of his ministry, and attributes to them very much the same sentiments or practices for which Christ had rebuked his adversaries. Then the later half of this chapter draws a portrait of a just man whom the wicked would persecute for his righteousness. And that also very well describes Christ himself. The body of these descriptions being enveloped by passages which discuss death and the prospect of resurrection at the beginning of the chapter and profess that God created man to be immortal at the end of the chapter. It is manifest that the whole of this chapter is indeed a messianic prophecy. While the Old Testament prophets referred to all of Israel as the children of God, Christ consistently made that assertion directly, explicitly, of himself. And it vexed his adversaries. While the Old Testament prophets had uttered the words of Yahweh their God, Christ claimed to bear the word of God within himself, as he was also that word made flesh. So he proclaimed, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. He is the epitome of this description of the righteous man in the wisdom of Solomon, and certainly seems to be the very man whom Solomon was portraying. Now one purpose of his coming is described, although the editors of the Greek manuscripts would include the first part of verse 15 along with this verse along with the text of this verse in verse 14. So the King James Apocrypha and Breton Septuagint have verse 14 to read only, he was made to reprove our thoughts. Thoughts expressed would be words or sayings. Here the Greek word is anoia, 
which is primarily an act of thinking, reflection, or cogitation. It is a compound word formed from a preposition meaning in, and the Greek word nous, which is mind. So anoia refers literally to that which is in the mind. Throughout the Gospel accounts, it is evident that Yahshua Christ knew the thoughts of men even before they were spoken. One example is found in Matthew chapter 9, where he had healed a man who was stricken with palsy. And we read, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on the bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, and thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think you evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. The man lying on a bed was evidently being carried around on a cot. But that ye may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power unto men. So Christ read their thoughts without them having uttered their contentions. And another example is found in Luke chapter 6. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Yahshua unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And looking around about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees watched him, and he knew what they were thinking. He didn't have to ask them. The word for reprove in this passage of wisdom, he was made to reprove our thoughts, is elenkos, a word which appears frequently in wisdom. And we've commented on the use of the frequent use of this verb as this commentary has gone through its first chapter and a half. Here it is translated appropriately as, in addition to being a proof or conviction, it is also a reproof, but it is a noun, not a verb. So we would translate the clause to read, he was made for a reproof of our thoughts. Not only did Christ condemn the words and actions of his adversaries, but he also condemned and reproved even their thoughts. Once again, this chapter is indeed a portrait of the Messiah. No other man has done that. So we continue with verse 15. And these are still the words of the wicked in relation to the righteous, the righteous man. He is grievous unto us, even to behold. For his life is not like other men's. His ways are of another fashion. The last phrase may be read, and his paths are in another direction or another way. In Luke chapter 3, the apostle cited Isaiah chapter 40 in reference to John the Baptist. As it is written in the book of the words, Esaias or Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, 
and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The paths of the wicked are often described in Scripture as being crooked. Yet, in Isaiah chapter 42, Yahweh makes a promise to the children of Israel. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Speaking of the past corruption in Israel, in chapter 2 of his second epistle, the Apostle Peter also makes a prophecy that the corruption will be repeated in the future. And we suffer under that very circumstance today where he wrote, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Many of our own people surely have been corrupted by our enemies, and for that reason they also oppose us today, speaking evil of white Christians for nothing less but speaking truth, or for nothing more but speaking truth. But where wisdom has here, he is grievous unto us even to behold, for his life is not like other men's, his ways are of another fashion. This is the perspective of the wicked, while in the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, we have the perspective of the righteous but ashamed sinners of Israel towards the Messiah, where it says, And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as, it, as we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So these two descriptions, these two descriptions of the Messiah made from opposing perspectives actually do complement one another. Now the wicked complain of something, which is also clearly elucidated only in the Gospel of Christ. We are esteemed of him as counterfeits. He abstains from our ways as from filthiness. He pronounces the end of the just to the blessed and makes his boast that God is his father. Of course, pronouncing the end of the just to the blessed is informing the children of God, who love God, that they will have their reward. That happened only with the gospel of Christ from the time of Solomon. Of course, redemption and reconciliation were promised in the words of the prophets, but the full meaning of redemption and reconciliation unto God was not described until the gospel of Christ. Where it says, where the wicked say, we are esteemed of him as counterfeits. The word for counterfeit is kibdalus. And according to Liddell and Scott, it means adulterated, spurious, false, or fraudulent. It was used of coins coins that were supposed to be gold or silver, but had base metals so that thieves made counterfeit coins in order to rip people off. Today, the government does that. And the, thieves, the thieves don't have an opportunity. The ancient prophets 
could not have had that attitude towards the subjects of their prophecies, as they may have been impious, but they were nevertheless Israelites even when they were sinful. The prophecies against the enemies of Israel were not written for the benefit of those enemies, nor was it imagined that they should even read or hear them. But these words do describe Christ and his assertions concerning his own adversaries, who were the wicked of his time, whom he certainly did consider to be counterfeits, because they were counterfeits. But even though they were counterfeits, they considered themselves to be legitimate, and therefore they were offended. However, he told them plainly, you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. And he denied them when they claimed to be the legitimate children of Abraham or of God. As we have also discussed, they were even offended that Christ had made his boast that God is his father. As we read here in this verse. We have already read from John chapter 8. Where Christ had said to those, I'm sorry, as we had read, yes, as we read here in this verse, I'm confusing myself. We have already read from John chapter 8, where Christ had said to those who opposed him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. And this did not Abraham. In other words, this Abraham did not do. Then he also told them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. In Matthew chapter 27, in the words of the people who were mocking Christ as he was dying on a cross, we read, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So Christ was persecuted and slain for the very words which Solomon attributes to the righteous man here, whom he also depicts as being persecuted and slain by the wicked. In essence, Solomon is presaging and even prophesying the very circumstances of the crucifixion of the Messiah. And we see that this is certainly a portrait of him. Now those words, which we have just read from Matthew chapter 27, are also prophesied in the wisdom of Solomon. Let us see if his words be true, and let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. For if the just man be the son of God, he will help him. There you have it, Matthew 27. And deliver him from the hand of his enemies. The word for prove in verse 17 is pirazzo, which is to make trial of or to test. The phrase in the end of him may be translated at his outcome, the outcome of the trial to which they hope to subject him. In verse 18, there is no definite article before Son of God. And the text should have been read in part, for if the just man is a Son of God. The word for enemies is a substantive, a participle of the verb antistemi, and may have been better rendered as opposition although it is plural in form. Speaking of the righteousness of men compared to the righteousness of God, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yeah, let God be true, but every man a liar. In other words, if you disbelieve, that doesn't change the truth of God. God is true, and you're a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Writing that, Paul was himself citing the 51st Psalm. 
However, the Septuagint is closer to Paul's citation than the Masoretic text. In the citation, the subject is God and not man. The final clause means that Yahweh shall be justified in his sayings, and he will prevail against those who would judge him. When the wicked crucified Christ, they were actually passing wicked judgment against God himself. Let us see if his words be true, and let us prove what shall happen in the end of him. The devil in the wilderness challenged Christ along these same lines, which we see in this verse of wisdom, where it is recorded in Matthew chapter 4. If thou be, the devil said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. There the devil was citing the 91st Psalm, and it is evident that even the devils of today know and can cite the scriptures, but do not truly understand them, while they often use them to challenge true Christians. But Christ had consistently challenged his enemies by confronting them with the fact that they should have believed him on account of the works which were done through him. Wanting to kill him simply for having healed a man on the Sabbath, as well as for referring to God as his father, we read in John chapter 5, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God in the minds of the Jews of the time. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself doeth that he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. As we proceed with this chapter, it becomes further evident that these words of Solomon had truly come to life in the ministry of Christ, as he was the word made flesh. So it continues to manifest itself as a prophecy where the wicked are now portrayed as saying, let us examine him with despitefulness and torture, that we may know his meekness and prove his patience. So Christ was examined and tortured by his enemies, both in the court of the high priest and later in the Roman praetorium. Later, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 8, his apostles would profess the understanding that Isaiah chapter 53 certainly was a prophecy of Christ, where we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? And that word would better be translated as life, referring to the duration and events of his life. For he was cut out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Remaining silent in the face of those who hated him, we see also both the meekness and patience which was displayed by Christ was also prophesied by Solomon here, as well as in that chapter of Isaiah. Finally, because of the intractability of the righteous man, the wicked had no choice but to kill him, just as they would also do with Christ, and as we have just seen, this was also prophesied in Isaiah. So in verse 20 of Wisdom chapter 2, 
the wicked say of the righteous man. Let us condemn him with a shameful death, for by his own saying shall he be respected. The Apostle James, in chapter 5 of his epistle, described the wealthy who are wicked in much the same way where he said in part, You have and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Once again here, the wisdom of Solomon is prophetic, as Christ himself had attested that he would be respected by his own saying. John describes what he said to his enemies in this regard. In chapter 2 of his gospel, following the moment when Christ had run the money changers out of the temple of Yahweh, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, Herod's temple. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. But while Christ spoke in parables to his enemies, he had spoken more explicitly where he described to his disciples what would happen. For example, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the heathen to mock, and to scourge, and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. These words were fulfilled, and for this reason we are Christians today. And this is why our ancestors have been Christians for the past 1,000 to 2,000 years, depending upon where they had been in Europe. We are Christians because the gospel was intended for us, so the apostles brought it to our ancestors. Dismissing medieval Roman Catholic fables, they did not bring it to red, yellow, black, or brown people, but only to white people. Now, in a blatant act of cultural appropriation, the Negroes are insisting that God be remade in their image, and the denominational churches are yielding to their demands. They are all frauds. The international churches are no different from the international banks and corporations who seek to impose global communism on us all. <laughs> Our enemies wish to destroy Christ, so they first claim him as their own, as the Jews themselves had also done, in spite of the fact that he and his apostles denied them. Of course, the wicked expect to expected to rid themselves of the righteous man, and did not expect him to be justified by his words. So now the wisdom of Solomon once again informs us that the wicked are mistaken in their ways, and it will tell us why. Such things did they imagine, and were deceived, for their own wickedness has blinded them. The children of Israel were often described as blind, since they had been taken into captivity as punishment for their sins. We read one of these passages earlier this evening. That we read in the words of the prophet Isaiah. But the wicked who are not of Christ are also blind, even when and if they claim to see. So we read at the end of John chapter 9. 
as Christ had just healed a man who was literally blind. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Not all of the wicked who opposed him were spurious, but some of the Pharisees were actually Israelites who were on the side of his enemies, as John explains elsewhere, for fear of the Jews. However, we are persuaded that where both Peter and Jude had explained that the enemies of God, the angels who left their first estate and later corrupted the assemblies of God, as they are described as having been bound in chains of darkness, that that allegory has several meanings. And one of them relates to the fact that the wicked are indeed blind to the purpose of God. All of these assertions are summed up in John chapter 12 from verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that as Isaiah had said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So you have your wicked who are spurious, who are counterfeits, and you have your wicked who are sinful Israelites, who are, for reasons of their own gain, going along with the spurious counterfeits. Solomon continues by describing the result of their having been blinded by their wickedness. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not. Neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. We have already cited John chapter 5, where the enemies of Christ refused to believe him and even wanted to kill him in spite of the marvelous works that he did. Following immediately after the passage we have cited, we read, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son, honors not the Father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into commendation, condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Condemnation, not commendation. I'm sorry. This is where that reward for blameless souls is announced, is in the gospel of Christ. The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, must be a portrait of the Messiah. It must be a messianic prophecy. Yet even for those of Israel, if one does not accept the gospel of Christ, one cannot truly understand Moses. So according to Paul of Tarsus, even the Old Testament is a Christian book to which those who reject Christ are blinded. Where he wrote in chapter 3 of his second epistle to the Corinthians, 
making an analogy of the people in, of Israel in respect to the veil which Moses had put over his face. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even under this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, meaning the heart, when it shall turn to Christ, the veil shall be taken away. So, according to Paul of Tarsus, one cannot properly perceive what the Old Testament means and says unless one has accepted the gospel of Christ. The Old Testament is a Christian book. The veil being taken away, the wisdom of Solomon reveals the full purpose of God in verse 23. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. The Kinists, the Calvinists, love to conjecture what is the image of God. And they try to claim that every biped on earth has that image of God, but they can't show you in scripture where they get that from. The truth is that the image of God is the image of his own eternity. It's the immortal spirit which Yahweh God bestowed upon the Adamic race. Paul of Tarsus also referred on several occasions to the mysteries of God. But doing so, he explained that the mysteries were no longer mysteries as they were revealed in Christ. So he wrote in Colossians chapter 1, in reference to the assembly of Christ, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the nations, the nations of Israel, not Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. If you read Paul of Tarsus and understand Paul of Tarsus, there is no more mysteries of God. They are revealed according to Paul of Tarsus, who revealed them. That hope of glory of which Paul speaks is the fact that Yahweh God did indeed create man to be immortal, but in spite of his immortality, man failed and found death. However, God did not fail, and God will not fail. Yahweh will not fail. If Yahweh created man to be immortal, every man, every Adamic man, will be immortal, whether he likes it or not, because some men awaken to eternal life, and other men awaken to eternal contempt. Man will perform the purpose for which he was created because Yahweh God will not fail. The vessel which God chose to bring man back down the path to the tree of life is Yahshua Christ, the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There aren't any exceptions to that. You can search the scriptures and find little things that conflict with that statement. But are you trying to prove the word of God wrong? Is Paul of Tarsus a writer of scripture or not? Should he be counted among the prophets of God and apostles of Christ or not? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And we could see that same thing in the prophet Isaiah 
in several places. So is Isaiah also lying? Paul had elaborated at length on that same thing in chapter 5 of his epistle to the Romans. That is also what he was referring to in Colossians chapter 1, where we have just cited, and he spoke of the riches of the glory of this mystery among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So next we learn from Solomon how man failed. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that Eve had envy for a tree, where it says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. But here we learn that the tree which she coveted was actually the devil himself. This is only one way by which we can know that the so-called tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually a race of people, the devil and his angels who rebelled against God, as they are described in Revelation chapter 12, or by the apostle Jude as the angels who left their first estate. According to Jude, and Peter in his second epistle, we see that those same Jews, those same devils, were the counterfeit Jews of their own time. And many more members of that same tree are still with us today, but only some of them are called Jews. To hold the side of the devil is to uphold the corruption of God's creation, which was perpetrated by the devil, race-mixing fornication, because that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, and that's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. As Christ says in Revelation chapter 2, he will kill the children of those who commit such fornication. That's how they who hold the side of the devil find death. While they themselves are tortured, are tormented, are punished for their sins, he will kill their children with death. Now, finishing our argument that this chapter of the wisdom of Solomon is indeed a messianic prophecy, we see another important precept which was repeated by Christ himself in the opening of chapter, in the opening verse of chapter 3, where we read, but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. As it is recorded in John chapter 10, after telling the counterfeit Judeans once again that they were not his sheep, Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, my Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So we see that man cannot change his destiny. Even to pluck his own self out of the hands of God, man cannot do. But if a man did not come from God, neither can he return to God as Christ also told his adversaries. In the same place in which he told them that God was not their father, in John chapter 8, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. But he had said to Nicodemus, a true Israelite, in John chapter 3, that unless a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. His adversaries were never in the hand of the Father. As the Apostle John had written in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. Yet the Jews had mocked Christ for calling himself a Son of God. In every way, this chapter has been a prophecy of Christ 
and of the ministry of Christ and is also entirely agreeable with the gospel of Christ. So is it a wonder that the same Jews who hate Christ also do everything that they can to discredit and even to destroy the wisdom of Solomon? It is also no wonder that this book was indeed considered as a part of the canon by first century Christians. This is why a Christian should live without fear of death, because a true white Israelite Christian should not expect to die and will live forever even if he dies. Yet if the time is appointed by God, when it comes, it cannot be avoided. So why should Christians fear? We, being Christians, are expected to take up our cross and follow him. He was meek, yet fearless in the face of his enemies. And that is also how all of the righteous should endeavor to be for as long as they are in this world. In the next, there are no enemies, as they shall all go to the lake of fire. Our victory already rests assured in Christ, as Paul also wrote in reference to death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and a good night.